Hello everybody, it's another podcast from Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. the eponymous Ruth, and here's my co-host for the day. It's Chris. Hello. We've uh, got Vin sitting on my knee, so we may get some squawking from him. We never know for sure. Um, Hi. So, look, we're coming back to a topic that we haven't looked at in a while now. It's poisoning. How do you like that? Fine, I guess. If you remember, if you're an old-timey listener, you may remember that episodes three and four... We talked in some depth about poisoning and we talked about how during the Victorian era there was a kind of... Fervour for it. A fervour, a poisoning fervour. Everyone went poisoning crazy. Uh, Yes, there was a wide accessibility of certain kinds of poison in the use of kind of household items like rat poison and that kind of thing. But also, if you remember, it was a time of great development in terms of forensic science. So the ability of scientists and police to detect murder by poison had also vastly improved. So we're revisiting some of those themes today. Look, why not go back and listen to episodes three and four if you haven't listened? And you can hear all about the St. Neitz Poisoner, horrifying fellow called Walter Horsford. Pop back and have a listen, because look, I'm going to refer back to it today. I'm not going to re-go over everything, am I? I don't know, you tell me. No, I'm not, because that would be boring. Boring for long-time listeners. I'm just going to put a small caveat in. It's a lovely sunny day and Chris and I have had some beer on the terrace. Haven't we? Yes. Just a little bit of beer on the terrace. But now the time comes to record, so that's what we're doing. On the subject of which we are drinking, I know lately we're always drinking homebrew, but we are drinking homebrew, but it's a new homebrew. What can you tell us, Chris? Well, I mean, the exciting thing is that it's contained within a poly bin, so it is the closest we can get in our own home to drawing a pint that tastes like it might yes. be from the pub. And it's a nice one. It's like a pale... Yeah, it's just like a session ale. Pale session ale, not too strong. No, like 3.8%. It's colour, pale. It is pale, yeah. Flavour. Yeah. It's it's slightly malty, I'd say. A little bit malty, mild, mild, quite malty refreshing. Flavor. Yeah, Chilled, cellar chilled. I mean, when I say cellar, I shed. mean bike shed. But. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to drink that for a while, but I have got a plan for later for something a little bit more exciting when we get later on in the story. By exciting, do you mean dangerously strong? Yes, I do. <laughs> I do mean dangerously strong. But let's see how far we get before we um, we get onto that. <laughs> Ruin ourselves. Ruin ourselves. Right, let's get to it. Okay. Professional. Mm-hmm. That's us. Yep. Poison. But where are we? We're venturing again outside the classic East Anglian triumvirate. We're going to Bedfordshire. That counts. Yeah, it's in East Anglia, isn't it? Well, probably. It's only we're going just slightly over the Cambridgeshire border to Bedfordshire, so we're not going too far. It's Victorian. Early Victorian times, the 1840s. The classic poisoning era. Just getting into it, yeah. What we're going to hear about today is the case of the Potten Poisoner. It's fun when things are alliterative, isn't it? 
<laughs> How fortunate for people at the time that Potten began with a P. That's poison. probably the reason it made the headlines in the first place. Well, perhaps. The main players are those of the Dasley family. Dwelling in the Bedfordshire village of Wrestlingworth. Number one, William Dasley, a young labourer in his mid-twenties. Number two, his wife, Sarah Dasley, a little bit older, but just by a few years. The pair had married in early 1841 and had moved to the village of Wrestlingworth. They had no children of their own, but they also lived with a young girl called Anne Mead, who was a, a teenager, I think she was 15. Mead. Oh, you're thinking we should have drunk mead? Well, it seems like a missed opportunity. It, God, it does. Have we got any in the cupboard? No, I don't think so. We drank it all another time. <laughs> I'm going to look in there, see what's in the back. There's always the possibility of mead in our cupboards. You never know. So living with them was a teenage girl called Anne Mead. And Anne was Sarah's stepdaughter from a previous marriage. Are you following? Yeah, I think so. Sarah's previous marriage had been to a man that was quite a bit older than her called Simeon Mead. And he died. Simeon Mead is a good name. You like it? Yeah. Simeon had died the previous year, after which Sarah had, had married her new husband, William. And so Anne had been somewhat alone in the world. And Sarah had said, well you know, come and live with me and my new husband. Hang on, so Anne was Simeon Mead's daughter? Yes. So right. Simeon Mead had been previously married. That wife died. Simeon Mead married Sarah. Yes. Then Simeon died. Oh Anne, Sarah's stepdaughter, came to live with Sarah and her new husband, So it's like William. a Bob Geldof type situation? Uh, Yes, I suppose. I mean, we can draw us a little family tree if you like. <laughs> But what you need to know, the most important facts are, there's this couple, William and Sarah, yep. and... Anne, who's a previous stepdaughter, is living with him as well. As you might gather from this, it had just been quite a short gap between Simeon Mead's death mm. and the marriage of the widowed Sarah to this new young husband, William. And in fact, this hasty union had caused quite a bit of gossip in the old town where they'd lived previously, which is one of the reasons they'd relocated to Wrestlingworth, this village in Bedfordshire. If the family had hoped to live a quiet life out of the public eye in Wrestlingworth... They were to be disappointed. It seemed that gossip was to follow them wherever they went. It wasn't long before William became known as a regular at the village pub, the Checkers Inn, which is still there to this day. Great. We apparently. Go there. Yeah, we, I mean, we've got this whole list, haven't we, of all the places we're going to try and go. Pubs to go to, gardens to sit in. Yeah, exactly. We're going to be taxiing our way around East Anglia, just visiting pubs of historical interest. Stories began to circulate around the village, I'm afraid of violent rows between William and Sarah. Oh, really? Yeah. So early in their marriage. So early in their marriage, just a few months in. Sarah objected to William's frequent drunkenness, and this seemed to be a problem, causing marital discord. She complained to friends that he would hit her in the midst of these terrible rows. There is some suggestion that William also objected to the presence of Anne in the house, being this kind of stepdaughter mm. from, from Who Sarah's... Who presumably he's having to provide for. I guess so, sure. He's the labourer. Mm. What's Sarah doing? What's Anne doing? So it's not a happy situation. You know, it's it's a bit sad because it seems like they kind of moved from Tadlow, where they lived previously, to this new village, hoping to have a bit of a new start and get away from the, the gossip about this kind of quick marriage after Sarah's husband died. And uh, it's all gone a bit tits up quite soon on. We enter the scene around this time. At some point amidst all this drinking and fighting... William started to show signs of ill health. Was I can already tell where this is going. Can you? Of course. Well. We know it's about poisoning. I know. Maybe I shouldn't have told you. Was the booze getting to him, though? 
Could it have been <laughs> oh, that yeah. he was drinking That's too much? a bit of jeopardy. Could he have been drinking too much booze? Maybe. Yeah. He was going to the Checkers Inn a lot. What were the symptoms? I'll tell you. His symptoms involved stomach pains mm. and vomiting. Mm. Those were the primary symptoms. Okay. Those can be symptoms of booze. Yep. Well, maybe not stomach pains. Vomiting, surely, sure. Surely vomiting. Yeah. We've all experienced that. That's not beat around the bush. No. And at first it seemed the local doctor would be able to cure him with some prescribed medicine. He prescribed some pills. Great. William started to improve. Oh, brilliant. Great news. However, after some early signs of recovery, William's health took a bad turn for the worse. The classic decline. <laughs> and you'll remember, listeners, that whenever we start to talk about a decline on this podcast... You know what's coming next. There's only one way it's going, and it's, it's not good. It's very rarely does the decline reverse. Very, very rarely. And indeed, so it was in this case. William just declined further and further. Carked it. <laughs> yeah, he carked it, I'm afraid. Poor William. Or as I've put it in my notes, he perished. He perished in late October of 1841. The marriage had not even lasted a year. And how old was he? Like early 20s. That's a young perishing. Very young. And some would say suspicious. But contrary to that idea, the uh, the local doctor did certify it as uh, death due to natural causes. What natural causes? Bad tum. <laughs> you know. He just said, well, he said, I can't see any evidence of foul play. It, it seems like... Was he actively looking for foul play? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, if you think, sure, forensic medicine's coming along in leaps and bounds around this time, but is that going to be the case for a local doctor in Wrestlingworth, Bedfordshire? Probably not. I wonder if, you know, foul play, if someone's been, like, clearly smashed over the head with a spade then you're like, probably not natural causes. I can see that they've got a gaping head wound. Mm. Same with a gunshot. Same with... A slicing. A slicing. <laughs> it's just form filling, isn't it? That's the problem. You think that he was just a box ticker? Well, I'm just saying, like, if no obvious signs of foul play, you're not going to go searching for foul play and essentially give yourself a bit more work to do. No, and the thing was that William had been ill. Yeah, of course. So it was seen that, okay, he's, you know, he's had some health problems, gone into the classic decline, and as you say carked it so you know what's really to look for for foul play so look maybe it was just natural causes mm -hmm. that's certainly what the doctor rules william was buried in wrestlingworth churchyard i presume the wake was held at the checkers inn his favorite place yeah they'd have put on a spread wouldn't they i think so i think they definitely would okay so what of sarah in the aftermath of this unfortunate perishment has she profited in any way from the perishment well I don't know that she's particularly profited financially. I mean, they weren't a wealthy family by any means. But if you mean has she profited by meeting another suitor... What? Yes. Was it the coroner? <laughs> no. No, it wasn't the coroner. Just in, in a few months later, Sarah became involved with another fellow who's a gentleman called, again, William... Mm. This time, William Waldock. And William Waldock had actually been a friend of the, the two of them. Oh, yeah. And in fact, it was William Waldock who Sarah had complained to about her husband beating her. Mm, how convenient. During the drunken fights. So she got involved with this new gentleman. Can you believe it? Another engagement. This is like a, a kind of classic film noir, but played out in the Bedfordshire countryside. Yeah, Right, so She's the Black Widow, is what I'm saying. You're imagining her as a kind of femme fatale exactly, figure. Exactly, yeah. 
It could be. I mean, I've seen some pictures, artists' impressions. <laughs> Let's say she's a Bedfordshire version. <laughs> well, tongues did start to wag. People were like, hang on, what's this? William just barely in the ground a few months, and now she's got another William on the go. They're going to have to move to an even smaller hamlet. <laughs> just keep moving to further away yeah, villages. Just a, a church, mm. a farmhouse. The engagement followed in February 1843. So if you think William Dasley died October, William Waldock in on the act February following year. The village was appalled. <laughs> frankly, frankly appalled. They'd never seen such behaviour. Tongues were wagging. Mm-hmm. Suspicions were bubbling to the surface. A third husband for Sarah. Yeah, in three years. In as many years. I mean, you can see why people were starting to think this was a bit shady. They were probably jealous. It was most unorthodox. I think they were. And it, it actually, if you look at the reporting on it of the time, it's one of these cases where there was quite a lot written about it. There's definitely an element of that judgment against a woman who was clearly kind of sexually active. Yeah. A lot of dismissing her as promiscuous. And that is seen to be, in large part, the worst thing about her character right. is the fact that she was this kind of... Wanton. A wanton woman, exactly. And that Why does she... she have three husbands and I'm only allowed one? <laughs> Why do I have to have this shit husband for all these years? And Sarah's got herself three. I think there was definitely an element of gender stereotype that came into play here. But on the other hand, you can see why they started to get a little bit suspicious. With good reason? Let's hear more. William Waldock's friends cautioned him against the new union. Mm, as well they might. One of the main accusations, as I say, was the fact that she was seen as being a promiscuous woman. And certainly that seemed a concern to William Waldock's friends. Like, you can't sort of hitch your wagon to this person. She's already had two husbands. Her honour is in the dirt. You know, we don't mm. trust her, all this kind of thing. But there was also, I think, a concern about the fact that the two previous husbands... Had, had met an untimely end. <laughs> ...had both met an untimely the end and now people started to think well maybe the local doctor didn't really know what he was doing when he said that William Dursley's death was natural causes because he had basically been fine until just a few weeks before he died so maybe this is something that actually should be investigated a little bit further suspicions were further roused as the village folk started to kind of talk amongst themselves about the events that had led up to William's death and then some of them recalled a rather strange incident where one of the family pigs had been discovered dead in the yard oh. just a few days before William himself had died. <laughs> a pig had been discovered. Mysterious death, presumably. Uh, yeah, but... No uh, visible signs of trauma or... No uh, blow to the head with a spade. Yeah. No gunshot wound. No... What was the other thing he said? Slicing. Just On the other hand, animals died of natural die. causes. Yeah. No yes. one bothered to perform an autopsy on the pig. That wasn't a concern. But so people started to go, oh, these kind of weird things were happening. Is it not a bit weird that a pig and a man died within just a few days of each other? <laughs> I'm not suggesting it was voodoo and that the pig had kind of been like a proxy. No, more that the pig had been a trial run. Well, interesting. Very interesting. So the villagers between them, gossiping, gossiping, comparing stories, they decided maybe we need to take this to a higher authority. God. No, not God. Oh. Although... Perhaps a few of them had a little pray about it. No, the time had come to inform the coroner in Bedford. Whoa. Oh, Bright yes. Bright lights, big city. <laughs> oh, yes. Let's inform the coroner in Bedford about this sequence of events. And thus, Mr Eagles enters our tale. Mr Eagles didn't hang around. He had a look at the facts. He was like, yeah, this looks 
shifty as fuck. Suspicious. He saw enough irregularity and suspicious activity in the tale to order the exhumation of William Dasley's body. Right. What about husband number one? Very impatient, Chris. Sorry. You I'm want saying, to exhume husband gonna, number I'm, one? I'm exhuming everyone. You say exhume them all straight off. Yep. Well, Mr. Get Eagles, line. Mr. Eagles was not so reckless. Mm. He said, let's first get William out. Okay. Remember now, this is six months after William Dursley was buried. There's still going to be some flesh on his bones. Could be, couldn't it? So he thought, let's get him out and have a look, see what's going on. And he also said, what we're going to do is have a proper inquest. Mm-hmm. This didn't happen before. The local doctor slash coroner... Slash charlatan. Bitch slack on this front. So uh, he said, we'll get William Dursley's body out. We're going to have an inquest. Where should we have the inquest? It's the checkers. <laughs> Yes, the checkers. But if you do you remember when we were looking at Maria Martin, mm. the unfortunate murder of Maria Martin, and the inquest for her was also held in the local inn. Uh, like a community hub. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, where else, you might say, are you going to have it? It's a, a local building. It's got space. It's available mm. to the public. It's They probably hire the back room out, don't they? They'll put, <laughs> they'll put on a spread. Sandwiches, crisps. <laughs> Mr. Eagle says, what we want is like a good variety, mini cocktail sausages. Yeah, deep fried brown lumps. Yeah, always the deep fried brown lumps. He said, we want plain crisps for people who don't like the fancy flavours. Then we want some kettle chips. Yeah, we'll have some sweet chilli flavour. Yeah, definitely. But not everyone will go for those. So then you want your run-of-the-mill flavours as yeah. well. My grand just wants plain. Mr. Eagle says, or are you talking about your grand? No, no, I was putting words <laughs> in his mouth. I don't know about my own I don't own think Mr. Eagle's grand is coming to the, <laughs> to the inquest. But yes, we're at a family event. So Mr. Eagles, uh, some could say, should this have been done six months earlier? Well, they should, but uh, presumably the structures were not in place in you know local government and no. what have you in that time. No. Now we come to it. What will be found when the corpse of William, now several months old, is disinterred, taken out of the grave? Stuck in the checkers. They're not putting the body in the checkers. Oh, okay. I thought it might be the centrepiece. Bloody hell. They'd have some larks of it. Prop it up at the bar. No. <laughs> his old favourite spot. Yeah, stick a, stick a tankard <laughs> in his hand. No. Articulate his arm so it goes up and down. An inquest isn't the same as an autopsy. No, but... Oh, just imagine. Let it. me make it clear. His body's coming out. That's being taken to the coroner's office and examined. The uh, inquest is that people are going to come forth and give testimony. Right. It's happening simultaneously to the One villager will say, oh, there was a dead pig. We didn't think anything (laughs) about it at the time, but now I look back. So, yeah, so the inquest is the same. (laughs) William Dasley's not being propped up at the bar. (laughs) Where's his sense of theatre? That's all I'm saying. Oh, Mr. Eagles, come on. First, before we have our next drink, I'm going to just tell you two discoveries about William Dasley's body when it was exhumed. Certain of the internal organs were in an unusually good state of preservation. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Secondly, traces of white powder were found in his intestines. Really? What a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Eagles was like, I'm getting on this. This is confirmed. He was a man of science. A lot of the suspicions he had. But before we start talking about these two pieces of new evidence, I'm going to make us a new drink. Great. And then we'll carry on. Okay, so our next our next drink has two elements. 
One is fizz, not champagne. No, probably Prosecco, I expect. And then the second element is some chocolate stout. And we're going to combine these elements into one drink. But why are we doing this? I'll tell you. Now, I've had some thoughts about what this is. And as you know, I'm not always the best at choosing drinks. So what this is, each element symbolises part of our story. Firstly, some chocolate stout, very brown. Stouty. Brown and stouty. That symbolises the brown dirt where Sarah Dasley's husbands were buried. Muck. Next, we have some fizz. The fizz represents the lovely celebrations of all of Sarah Dasley's new marriages. (laughs) (laughs) This is tenuous. Tenuous at best. You think it tenuous? (laughs) I think it tenuous. Well, it could be. And the next question is, what does it taste like when you mix chocolate stout and champagne? I'm going to say disgusting. Because I haven't tested this out, people. And also, don't keep saying champagne. It's not champagne. It's not champagne. But look, Sarah Dasley wouldn't have had champagne at her wedding, for God's sake. Well, she wouldn't have had Prosecco either. She'd have had (laughs) ale and she'd been happy with it. But I like to imagine her, if she was in the current day, that she'd be in Hollyoaks. (laughs) In which case, they would definitely have Prosecco. Yeah, you're probably right. Chester's a wash of it. I um, lately have somehow seen some more Hollyoaks. More Hollyoaks than I've seen in years. Everyone's just doing crimes. That's all Hollyoaks is now. Okay, here, what should we call this? We'll call it... Um, Looks like murky ditch water. We'll, <laughs> we'll call it the husbands of Sarah Dasley. I mean, tastes, right. tastes how it is, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, do you sweet, know what? Sweet and fizzy. I think this would be better if I'd put in less chocolate stout and more champagne. So I think let's drink... <laughs> let's, let's drink this drink down a, really quick. Let's drink some of it down one. and top it up with champagne i.e. Prosecco. What do you think? All right. Okay. Now, if you remember from just a few moments ago... As far as these people are concerned, it's merely seconds. I know, but think what they do after advert breaks now. They recap the whole thing. Oh, that's true. As if you had not three minutes before been watching the exact thing that they're telling you about. Okay, so first, white powder. Yep. Second, organs in an unusually good state Mm. of repair considering how long he'd been buried for. A state of repair. A good state of repair, i.e. not a state of disrepair. What does it mean, Chris? If you heard those two facts, what mm. does that tell you? Well, I suppose I would say that there'd been some unnatural business afoot. Sure, but what? Well, something that preserved the organs. Maybe right. um, their salty water. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's preservation? I'm thinking of pickling, I suppose. Okay, let's move to Vinegar. the white powder. And the white powder, I guess, is some horrible poison, Okay, right? yeah, I mean... There's no vinegar involved, but yes. Well, if I was picking some organs, I'd use some vinegar. I think what we need then is a recap about the effects of arsenic on the human body. And I refer here to Linda Stratman's excellent book, The Secret Poisoner, which, again, we talked about quite a bit back in our early days, episodes three and four. The first important thing to remember is that arsenic is a metalloid element, which means that once it's inside the human body, it won't be absorbed. Break down. It won't break down. It won't be absorbed by the body. And if you remember with the St. Neots poisoner, Walter Horsford, he used strychnine 
And strychnine is an organic compound. Mm -hmm. It's an organic poison. It comes from the seeds of a tree. So that will eventually that's going to be absorbed into the body and you won't necessarily get any um, traces of that left. But arsenic is metalloid. So that will not have this process of breaking down and being absorbed. So it can last for many months in the human body and still be detected. This is a an interesting point in terms of when this case happened historically. Because we could say the timing of William Dasley's death was, in this respect, convenient for those investigating and less convenient for whoever it was that had given him the arsenic. Because just a few years earlier, in 1836, a paper had been published by a Mr James Marsh. He was a chemist and he'd been researching the most foolproof way of detecting the presence of arsenic in the human body. Is it white powder in the organs? <laughs> well, no. So, fine, we find the white powder. But what he wanted to find a test to do was to prove that that powder was arsenic, basically. Right. The following from The Secret Poisoner outlines James Marsh's test for arsenic. Firstly, if your suspect items are solid, e.g. a pudding, so some food, they should first be boiled... To produce a solution. Depends on the pudding. You can't say all pudding <laughs> is solid. What about custard? Okay, suppose. Thick liquids like soup or stomach contents, or in custard. this case, stomach contents, uh, should be diluted with water and filtered. Then Marsh added zinc and acid to the liquid to be tested. If arsenic were present, this would produce arsine. His apparatus directed the gas up a curved glass tube and the gas was ignited as it emerged, the hydrogen burning off first to produce water vapour. A piece of cold window glass was held in contact with the flame on which there formed a thin film of metallic arsenic. Oh. If the flame was directed into a glass tube open at both ends, the exposure to air oxidised the arsenic, which formed a white pulverulent sublimate of arsenious acid. I don't understand any of those words. Me neither. But I think the thing that we need to focus on is that James Marsh had come up with a method which scientifically and chemically could prove that this white substance or that, you know, whatever mysterious thing was found was arsenic, right. which hadn't existed before. They, You know, fine, you can say, oh, here's some white powder, that could be arsenic. But what he can do is chemically prove that that is the case as you heard the test could also be used on so if you had someone that you thought might have been poisoned and they'd eaten some food the previous day or whatever mm -hmm. you could test the food yeah. and that would reveal within the food if arsenic was present of course in this case because William died so long ago all we have is the contents of his stomach mm, but it was powdery I'm sure some scientifically minded people who are listening will have understood that uh, <laughs> that situation. All we need to know is Marsh has formulated this test. Forensically, it can now be proved that arsenic is specifically present in a body. And the Marsh test, as it came to be known, was hailed as a great breakthrough in forensic science. And Marsh himself was awarded the large gold medal of the Society of Arts. Not the small gold medal. The large gold medal of the Society of Arts. And the Marsh test was used in the Dasley case to determine that the white residue they had found was indeed arsenic. So the other point about William Dasley's body is that some of his organs were remarkably well preserved. Arsenic actually has this effect 
okay. on the body. Because, again, as far as I understand it, really simplifying something that's probably incredibly scientifically complicated, it kills a lot of the bacteria that are involved in the process of breaking down the body after death. So somebody that has arsenic in their organs, in their digestive system, will not decay mm as quickly as they otherwise would have done. So you do find that in arsenic poison, bits of the body will be really well preserved. Uh, and that was, again, I think we discussed this a little bit before, but they did some horrible tests once they began to suspect that this was the case with dogs, where they would uh, deliberately poison dogs with arsenic and then would like dig up the bodies mm. after however many months and found that the bodies were preserved in a way that wouldn't be the case otherwise. And I discovered... Very interesting that during the 19th century, solutions containing arsenic were often used for embalming bodies. Right. Precisely because of this preservative, preservative quality. Yeah. So um, embalming, of course, is... It wasn't so far off with vinegar then. No, you weren't. I'm sorry, I poo-pooed your idea. <laughs> I did poo-poo it. And it was a form of arterial embalming, which means you're replacing the blood with yeah. a different solution. In this case, a liquid solution with arsenic included. And the use of arsenic for this purpose became commonplace in Europe. It was also widely used during the American Civil War in the 1860s because it was discovered that preserving the bodies of fallen soldiers with an arsenic-based solution meant that the bodies could be sent home for burial should the families be willing to pay. Otherwise they go in a sideshow. Otherwise, they get left on the battlefields, I think. But it meant that, you know, these bodies could be shipped back to whichever state the, the fallen soldier was from. And by the time they got home, they would still be in like a relatively good state. You could have an open casket. Yeah. And, you know, you could you could bury something that had some resemblance to the, the son that you had, you know, seen off to war without them just being, unfortunately, a disgusting corpse. So it was it became quite a common practice. And it, as far as I can tell, again, it was also most likely used when Lincoln was assassinated, which was 1865. Do you know much about Lincoln and his assassination? No, oh, I mean, John Wilkes Booth shot him in a theatre. And after he died? No. Nothing. So Lincoln's body lay in state for nearly a week for people to come and pay their respects. And then two more weeks travelling around the northern states. Right, showing you off. Stopping at various various cities and towns so that people could come again and pay their respects to Lincoln's corpse. Should have done that with Prince Philip. <laughs> stuck, stuck him in a Range Rover, driven uh, him around the country. Pickle him in arsenic. Yeah. <laughs> Articulate is... his arm so he's just waving oh out the God. window. I mean, this was quite a common practice in the old days. Cromwell, the same thing. They, you know, you you display people for people to come and um, say goodbye to. I feel cheated, frankly. You wanted to see Prince Philip's corpse. Yeah, why not? We wouldn't have gone. Come on. If they were genuinely touring his corpse around the country, I'd have gone. Pickled in arsenic. Yeah, especially if it had articulated limbs. I don't think they articulated Lincoln. No, but he was just that lying would be in a that coffin. would be the modern innovation. <laughs> Two-thirds of the way through no. the journey, they'd make the body sit up and the arm wave. I think the modern innovation for parading Vince Philip would be that he's a hologram. <laughs> Not that they've articulated <laughs> his corpse. Yeah, you're probably right. And then he just, like, dances about on the top. Like when Kim Kardashian's birthday happened and Kanye West made a hologram of her exactly. father appear. Her famous father Wait, wait until next time it's Prince Harry's birthday... That's what Meghan will do. No, Prince Philip reanimated as a hologram. Yeah. Well, look... As I say, I think it was that Abraham Lincoln was pickled in arsenic solution. So that just shows you 
its strong powers. Oh, here's my last fact about Lincoln. Yeah. Pickled in arsenic. The body was repeatedly embalmed during the process of of it being sort of paraded around the northern states. And apparently when the body was exhumed 36 years after his death in 1901, he was entirely recognisable and in good shape. I'll just tell you quickly in case you're worried. The reason that they exhumed Abraham Lincoln is because they had to do some reconstruction work on his tomb. He wasn't being exhumed to check for poisoning. They knew why he'd died. So here we are. The point is that just shows arsenic was a good preservative and all this was very well known about arsenic that it would keep your organs and your body in good shape so we should all be having a little arsenic in our diet no you're saying it's exactly not what i'm saying because as we also know arsenic has a cumulative effect so you won't immediately die from a low dose of arsenic but over time the build-up of arsenic in your system because it doesn't get absorbed or break down will your cark it But do you want to hear about why they stopped embalming people with arsenic? Okay. I mean, have a guess. Did it have an effect on the embalmers? Uh, No. No. Was it because you need people to decay to make space (laughs) in churchyards and similar? (laughs) Uh, No, but I mean, yeah, I I think that could be fair enough because I know space is at a premium in uh, graveyards. No, it was mainly because of concerns about arsenic entering the water supply around cemeteries because it doesn't break down. As I repeatedly have said during this episode, it doesn't break down. Is it a heavy metal? Yeah, it could be. Don't know. It's certainly a metalloid. But um, so if you have a lot of bodies that were embalmed with arsenic, the body itself is going to start breaking down eventually, whatever the coffin is that it's in will break down but the arsenic is going to go into the soil yeah and ultimately that can end up in the water table and there were various tests done in the states particularly because this had become quite prevalent around um cemeteries looking at the water and there were found to be uh, traces of arsenic something like three times higher than the average so they were like hang on this is getting a bit a bit worrying so they stopped doing it also it meant that you couldn't if, say, in the case of Will- William Dasley, if he'd been pickled in arsenic... You wouldn't have been able to determine the pickling he'd... arsenic from the poisoning arsenic. Exactly, so it made it harder to tell. So towards the end of the 19th century, this sort of fell out of use, partly because of all these concerns, partly because formaldehyde was discovered to give quite a similar effect, although not as effective. Formaldehyde, not as good as arsenic for preserving bodies, but less worrying side effects. <laughs> Okay, back to the story. Can you remember what's going on even? Well, William Business is being told about the regions. No, that's Lincoln. <laughs> oh, there's a, uh, what's it in place? An exhumation, yeah. an inquest is in place. An inquest. Never confuse William Dasley, Bedfordshire labourer, with Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States. Very shoddy uh, thing to confuse. Okay, let's get back to the story. William exhumed. Traces of arsenic, the Marsh Test, carried out all looking very suspicious. Testimony began to be recounted at the inquest under the keen gaze of Mr Eagles, the coroner of Bedford. People started to give evidence that showed, in this case, a deliberate poisoning seemed likely, Mm. if not almost certain. Much of the evidence given at the inquest was also heard at trial, so I'm going to come back to that shortly. But first... Heard at trial. Exactly. First, we must hear that upon learning of the exhumation of her late husband, Sarah fled Wrestlingworth and made for London, only consolidating her status as prime suspect. Mm. 
in this uh, in this potential murder. But she couldn't evade police for long and was soon arrested and brought back to Bedford while investigations continued. Uh, you'll never escape Bedford. <laughs> Further shocking revelations were soon to emerge. Can you guess what happened next? No. Mr Eagles decided to broaden the scope of his inquiry. To the next husband, the first husband. Back to Simeon Mead. Two more bodies were to be exhumed under the watchful gaze of Mr Eagles. First, Simeon Mead, Sarah's first husband. Logical. Father of the very Anne who had been living with the Dazleys all this time. The second body to be exhumed, this may come as a shock to you, was that of a young baby, the son of Simeon and Sarah, who had died at just a few months old. Given that the death of the young son, named Jonas, had just a few months later been followed by Simeon's death, and the coroner, Mr Eagles, thought it worth examining both bodies. Could it be that Sarah was not just a killer, but a serial killer? So, the next body's come out. Nothing could be conclusively determined for the body of Simeon, the first husband, but perhaps even more shocking, the body of baby Jonas was discovered to contain arsenic, just a few months old. It seemed likely that Sarah had indeed murdered her own son just a few years before in 1840, and the suspicions then grew most likely her first husband, Simeon Mead, to boot. Prosecutors decided that they charged her just with the murder of William as they considered their case to be pretty watertight. Hang on, so this was enough evidence for them? I mean, who's to say that she was the one who put the arsenic into William? Well, what you're going to hear is all the evidence that came out at the inquest, which I'm saving for trial. They felt they had enough evidence and they thought, well, look, it does seem likely that she killed baby Jonas arsenic as well. Yeah. We don't have enough to say that Simeon died from arsenic, but, you know... That's how suspicions are leading. But they thought, we've got enough to to charge her with this one murder, so we're just going to fling everything we've got behind that one. If that case fails, then they thought, we can always look at trying to build a case around the other murders because, of course, she couldn't be tried again if they were, like, fling all the murders in at once and she was found not guilty. So they're, they're kind of hedging their bets a little bit. Either way, she'll swing for it. Well, that was the thinking. Sarah continued to protest her innocence throughout the process. She accused William of murdering Simeon and Jonas back in Tadlow. She said that William yeah, had on a dead man. to get her out of the of the unhappy marriage with Simeon. William had done the arsenicking. But all of these claims, she kept changing her story. Oh, this happened, this happened. Nobody poisoned anyone. Oh, no, William poisoned them. Oh, then I did this by mistake. All these kinds of things. And all claims were met with scepticism. And several witnesses were called at the trial to testify against Sarah. One was a woman named Mrs Carver, a busybody of the village, no doubt. She recounted that Sarah had told her that uh, she was going to Potton to get some pills for William, who wasn't well. I did wonder when Potton might enter the proceedings. Mrs Carver was then surprised to see Sarah throwing these pills away, just throwing them into a hedge or something, (laughs) and replacing them in the pillbox with some other pills instead. When questioned, Sarah had told Mrs Carver that the doctor's medication was basically rubbish and she was instead going to use a different remedy from the village healer so she was replacing the doctor's pills with these kind of more natural remedies from the village healer. however two chemists also reported that sarah had purchased arsenic from them (laughs) not long before william's death damning 
Forensic evidence was then given, referencing the Marsh test and the arsenic found in William's system. Again, a very early instance of forensic science being used at trial to prove guilt or or innocence. I mean, it still seems to me circumstantial, though. Yes, she bought some arsenic. Yes, arsenic was present in the body. How do they prove that it was her to put it there? You want more evidence? I'm just saying the burden of proof maybe need to be stronger these days. Well, let me tell you a bit more of the testimony given at trial. The testimony of Anne Mead, Sarah's stepdaughter, Simeon's daughter, proved quite damning. Mm. Anne said that she had seen Sarah making up pills for William in the kitchen of their home. She had thought that the pills were on doctor's orders and had herself encouraged William to take them. Sarah had said, oh, go and give these pills to William. They're from the doctor. They'll make him better. I mean, did William have anything wrong with him at this stage? Well, he had the early symptoms, vomiting, stomach cramps. Oh, okay. And then, so, the idea is... She'd given him a bit. Exactly. Get him ill. And then, in order to get him to take a bit more... Right. She'd pretended it was it was medicine. Under the, uh, exactly. Yeah. In fact, Anne said that she'd taken one of the pills herself in a bid to encourage William to take them. Both Anne and William quickly started to show symptoms of stomach cramps and vomiting. William vomited in the yard one night, Anne reported, and it was this vomit that the unfortunate pig had eaten. Oh, no. Leading to its own death via arsenic poisoning. The poor pig had eaten up William's vomit. Yeah, pigs will do that. They're like pigeons of the earth. (laughs) I've seen dogs do it. Now, there was further testimony given, eyewitness statements. Members of William's family, including his mother and brother, testified that they too had seen Sarah making up medicines. And the brother even said he had seen her stir a white powder into a drink (laughs) that she then gave her husband. And so it emerged that over the course of several days of William's illness, various people, Anne, William's mother, William's brother particularly, had witnessed Sarah preparing medicines and drinks as William's symptoms got worse and worse, ultimately decline, death. This, the prosecution argued, had been the slow process of building up the cumulative arsenic in his body, which had ultimately led to his death, lethal levels of arsenic. So, I mean, what do you think now? I know earlier you said, oh, all circumstantial. How are you feeling? No, I mean, it's just been difficult. She's clearly done it. There is a lot of evidence against her, yeah, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that, the, you know, the previous husband, the child. Yeah. It's not looking good, is it? As far as motive goes, that's an interesting one. And it's not one that actually seems to have really been addressed too much mm. at the trial because there was a lot of other evidence which really pointed towards Sarah so they didn't need to build up a huge you know if you haven't got enough forensic evidence or if you haven't got enough eyewitness testimony you need to establish motive but they had a lot of other stuff I mean as far as motive goes it seems that it was really you know she wasn't benefiting financially a huge amount it seems that it was really just that boredom boredom or you know she wanted to move from one husband to another and you know just she didn't like the situation she was in so she wanted to get out of it So, I mean, motive, when you read about this case, is really not very well fleshed out at all. So we can only really speculate. I mean, maybe she just found it a lark. That's the thing with serial killers. Maybe they just find it a lark. Yeah, keeps you entertained. Of course, the defence get to have their say. The defence lawyer obviously saw that they couldn't... Well, I mean, it's not a great defence. Arsenic was there. They didn't feel they could say, no, there's been a mistake. He wasn't poisoned. He died naturally. But the defence lawyer argued she had poisoned William by accident. 
she had like thought that she was giving him the good medicine, but somehow that had gone wrong and she'd actually been giving him arsenic. This line of reasoning was futile. The jury deliberated for less than an hour before finding her guilty. And as we know, usually if if the jury come to a decision yeah, very quickly. quickly, that's usually going to be a guilty yeah. a guilty. There's call. no discrepancy within the mass of the yeah. jury. Yeah. yeah. And I have a quote now from the judge, Baron Alderson. He put on his black cap to issue the sentence. It now only remains for me to perform my duty, and that is to pass the awful sentence of the law unto you, Sarah Dasley that you be taken from this place to the jail from whence you came and that you be hanged by the neck until you be dead and that your body be buried within the precincts of the jail in which you should be confined after your conviction. And may God have mercy on your soul. That's the classic line, isn't it? Sarah, in response, shouted, I am not guilty! But no one was buying it. No. If you want to read a full report of the trial from where I got that quote, there's a detailed newspaper from report from the time which is reproduced on the Victorian Crime and Punishment website which has the whole like account of the trial with various backwards and forwardsing so as we've come to expect for these Victorian hangings her execution in Bedford took place in August 1843 and was attended by huge crowds as they always were yeah. any case that caught the public eye would always result in these massive crowds Her relatively unusual status as a female serial killer meant that she had perhaps even more hatred from the general public than more run-of-the-mill killings. And it seems that she may be the first kind of recognised British female serial killer. Okay. The thing is, because she was only tried and found guilty for one murder... In terms of... Technically. Technically, she doesn't meet the standard for a serial killer, but actually... What is the standard three. for a serial killer? Three. It's three. Is it really? Yeah. Where's that laid out? In the... um, I think that was when, um, I think that's from the whole FBI. Right, John Douglas. Yeah, John Douglas, you know, what, what counts as serial killer and three, I think, is the standard they settled on. One could be an accident. Two is just <laughs> foolish. Once you've hit three, there's intent. Sure, or, you know, or hopefully they might get you before you get to three. But, yeah, um, so so um, legally she hasn't kind of met the standard, but in all probability she was a, a early British female serial killer. And she was the last woman to be hanged at Bedford Jail. And the last thing I have about this one is just a little interesting thing, which I will try and put a picture up is that in 2020, a rather unusual souvenir of the hanging was sold at auction. Uh, And this is a little fob or like a little seal, about an inch high and carved out of bone. It's carved with, on one side, the date of the hanging, on the other side, a maker's mark. And it's also got the initials TIB carved on it, which is likely to be the original purchaser of the trinket. But it's thought that this would have been, as we know, they would often, you know, people would make like ink prints of engravings mm. that would be sold at these hanging events or little souvenirs, you know. Um, You'd write a song. Yeah, their little songs would get made uh, when William Corder was hung. For the murder of Maria Martin, people like took bits of the hanging rope and, you know, sold them as souvenirs and that kind of thing. And this was like a little carved trinket marked with the date of the hanging that came up for auction in 2020 and was sold for over £2,000 to a private collector. 
gone in a sinister cabinet somewhere. You think so? Of course. A sinister murder cabinet. And so that's the end of the story. One thing I found fun about, or not fun, slightly amusing about this was the fact that she's known as the Pot and Poisoner. The second murder took place in Wrestlingworth. The first murder took place somewhere called Tadlow. It seems like she, she did... She had once been to Pot. <laughs> She did, I think she grew up in Potton. And then there's this thing that she'd gone to the doctor in Potton. And then you think, is it just that Potton Poisoner? Yeah, sounds it was nicely alliterative. <laughs> so she's just ended up with this um, being known as the Potton Poisoner, even though actually Potton had very, very little to do with her crimes. It's a strong brand. Yeah. There we go. There's another Victorian poisoning for you. Quite different in that we don't often see a female serial killer. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you very soon with some more stories. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Bye-bye.